the struggle is real because we're still in this broken world and we're still in this broken body. And until we're glorified by Christ at the resurrection, we're stuck in the middle of this war. Well, welcome, welcome. Uh, we are, as you can see behind me, still in our series on Romans and will be for a while. Now, last week we were in chapter 6 of Romans, which is sort of a climactic piece or a chapter in the book, really telling us to live in the Spirit of God, the victory that God has given over us. And then the next chapter, chapter 8, is this very positive chapter and the truth about no condemnation for those who believe in Christ Jesus. And then sandwiched in between of chapters 6 and chapter 8, surprisingly, if you know how to count, is chapter 7. Which, to be honest, is a bit of a letdown if you read it. You might look at it and go, this, uh, not quite as exciting not quite as encouraging, kind of a letdown, but it's the truth, and sometimes the truth hurts. Let me tell you what I mean by this. Um, I am from a generation which many have called soft or weak, and uh, I agree, to be honest with you. Uh, and I don't just mean soft around the middle like me. I mean just unable to hear harsh truth. I'll give you an example. Now, I'm from a graduating class of, I think, 73, so massive school. And every year, you know, every graduating class, whoever is handling the yearbook for that graduating class, there's always a page in the yearbook called superlatives. You know what I'm talking about? Right? It's to... to pick out basically the exceptional, those who stood out from the crowd within your class. Now imagine in a class of 75, how many that would be. Because not a lot of people. Everybody knew everybody. But I had always kind of looked forward to this growing up, you know, seeing in my class, maybe where would I fall or if I would have even been considered, you know, exceptional at anything. Because that's what a superlative is. It's being exceptional. Now, in our yearbook, I was voted most artistic in my graduating class, which is awesome because that's the thing I always wanted to be voted for. It's always the thing I thought was maybe most unique about me, especially in my school days. However, because I come from this generation, that vote really means nothing. I have no idea if people actually thought that about me at all, because for the very first time in our school's history, my graduating class had a student council that thought it would be a great idea if every person in our graduating class got a superlative. And when they petitioned us and brought, you know, the papers around to confirm that they were going to be allowed to do that with the, uh, with the yearbook, I said to them, do you know what a superlative is? 
Do you understand the point of this page? If, everything, if everyone is exceptional, no one is exceptional. How do you know that you actually are the most something on this page if really it was just, well, I already voted for somebody else who might be a better fit for the superlative, but since everybody has to have one, I might as well include you. So I have no idea if anybody thought I was actually artistic or not, or if they just said, well, I got to plug him in somewhere. So that award means nothing now. Um, and case in point, I threw my yearbooks away. I just don't care anymore because they mean nothing now. That superlative means nothing. It's like getting a participation trophy, which in my case, if you don't know, I'm a very competitive person. I do not understand playing a game if your goal is not to win. And when people say, what about the goal is to have fun? And I said, don't you know that winning is fun? <laughs> if I get a participation trophy, you might as well just slap me in the face. That thing is getting burned. I don't want it. That means nothing to me. It's not the truth. Sometimes the truth hurts. You not earning a trophy or you not winning means that the other guy was better. And sometimes you need that motivation in your life. Sometimes the truth is you're not as good as you think you are. Sometimes the truth hurts. And we have tried in our culture, particularly in today's culture, to shield ourselves from anything uncomfortable and anything that might hurt our feelings. But the problem is you can't escape the truth and sometimes the truth hurts. Now we are dealing with the book of Romans, whom the Holy Spirit used Paul to write. Now Paul, the apostle Paul, is a guy who should have a lot to brag about. He once in the Jewish community was a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a student of the famous Gamaliel. He was the man. He was well-respected. He was wealthy. He had what you would want to have in that culture. And then having been saved, you would think that he would be someone who you would look up to because as a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, he was better than anybody really at following the Jewish law. He was part of the group that told people how to, how to follow the law. That was his job for a very long time. This is the guy who's writing chapter seven and he's writing it about himself. You'll find out that he uses the word I about 30 times in chapter seven because he's talking about himself. Someone who should be one of the greatest Christians of all time. While he's writing this, he's planting churches around the world and spreading the gospel and doing a better job than anyone in history has ever done it. That's the guy who wrote this. So if you ever feel like it's hard to live up to the standard that God has set for us, well, you're right because even Paul couldn't do it. And this is his honest writing about it. After chapter six, in which he writes that we should give ourselves over to the spirit and allow the spirit to help us be free from sin, he writes this chapter, which starts out, or do you not know brothers or brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, meaning he's speaking to the Jews, 
that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. And so he is transitioning from this idea of being completely set free from the law and giving ourselves over to the Spirit to give us the strength we need to live without sin. But he says here, the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. In verse 2 he says, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she has married another man. Now, to be clear, he is pointing out a cultural thing to the Jews, a piece of their culture and a piece of Jewish law to help them understand the concept of sin and grace. This is not a passage about marriage. It's it's using their cultural and legal understanding of marriage to make a point about the law and grace. And what he's saying is, according to the law, and according to the law of Moses, men could divorce women for whatever reasons. They had lots of rules in the in their writings and in the rabbinical writings of of why a man could divorce a woman. But in their law, a woman could not divorce the man, no matter what. She was tied legally to that man, but the only thing that freed her from that contract was if her husband died. And then she was free to marry another man. Now, a woman could marry another man and not be an adulteress if her husband died. But if her husband was still alive, she was considered an adulteress. And so the only thing that freed her was death. This is the point that he's bringing up because it is death that freed us from the law. It is the death of Jesus that frees us from the law. And so this is what he's pointing out. He says, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. And so what he's saying is, through the death of Christ and through our acceptance of that sacrifice, we have become dead to the old nature. And through the resurrection of Christ, we can become the bride of Christ as he is the bridegroom that we are now connected to and live in this new life. And so we're dead to the old, alive to the new. We can put away that sin nature And because of that, we are able to bear fruit for God. Now, when you, if you've ever been a farmer or done any agriculture or growing, and what you might know is that sometimes to keep a plant healthy or to keep a fruit tree in particularly healthy, sometimes there are dead branches that you need to cut off. And when you cut them off, that tree is able to now bear more fruit. And so this idea of bearing fruit for God paves way for the rest of what he's talking about, of cutting off the dead pieces. Because the problem is there's still dead branches on the tree. Verse 5, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions were aroused by the law. Well, we just got done with a whole chapter of him talking about us being freed from the law, and even this little passage about us being freed from the law, and now he's talking about the law arousing sin within us, knowing what is evil 
drives us to do evil sometimes, is what he's saying. And this reminds me of the very first sin, when Eve is deceived by the serpent, and the serpent tells her, no, look at the fruit, it's good for eating. You won't die. In fact, you'll be like God if you eat of this fruit. And he points and appeals to her pride and her desire to be like God and to take the throne, to take the judgment throne and to consider what's right and wrong for her. And she's deceived by that. And when she's presented with something that she knows is wrong innately, she reaches out to bite the fruit, and the thing that she knew was wrong was the temptation for her. And that's what he's saying. Sometimes when we know something is wrong and we fixate on it, that is the temptation to make that causes us to sin. Now, I have a two-year-old, so I am acutely aware of this. Meaning, if there is something that she should not have, let's say a pair of scissors, if I put a pair of scissors within reach, my two-year-old will try to reach them. She knows she's not supposed to have them, but she will try to get them because it is within our nature to go after what we know we shouldn't have. And he says, we were, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now what Paul is doing here is he's talking to the Jews and he's explaining his experience of being a Jew who was freed from the law through the grace of Christ. And he's basically pointing out that what the law does is condemn you. Because you're now aware of all the things that you do wrong. But we can be freed from it in the newness of the Spirit because of the resurrection of Christ. And he goes on to say, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Now what Paul is really getting at, and he particularly points out the sin of covetousness, the 10th commandment, right? Thou shalt not covet. This is a law that is not external. The, law, the piece of God's law, envy or covetousness, wanting what others have, is internal. It's a heart issue, not an external issue. It's not something that you can clean up on the outside. It's something you have to deal with internally. Now, Paul, who was once a Pharisee, looked very good on the outside. He was able to follow the law of God as good as any man could have possibly done. And he is acutely aware of his own failure because the law includes coveting, because the law includes the condition of your heart, not just your ability to have self-control externally. And he's saying he's failed. The fact that it includes the internal peace in covetousness, he now knows he has failed. You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived me, and I died. 
And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Now he says this piece, and he's being really open about what he's gone through. He says, I was once alive without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. Now there's a question about what Paul is actually talking about here. Some think maybe he's talking about youth, maybe an age of accountability thing, where there is a time of innocence in very small children who maybe they do things that are sinful, but they're really kind of just unaware of it all. But there is a time mentally when it becomes mindful where you actually really do know what you're doing is wrong and you become conscious of what you're doing. Maybe that's what he's talking about. Maybe. I'm not discounting that. But I think it's probably this. There was a moment in, in Paul's journey, as you read through the book of Acts, where after he is saved from his Damascus Road experience, he goes and he preaches the gospel and he has a lot of zeal. But then you find out that he goes away for quite a while to the mountains of Arabia. And he hides out there for a while before he comes back and starts his ministry up again. I think it's probably talking about that point. This zeal of a brand new Christian who had his experience, his encounter with Jesus, and he feels completely free and clean. And you know what? That's understandable. When you become justified by Christ and you experience the freedom from sin, you feel like the weight has been lifted off of your shoulders. All that moral weight that you bear, everything that you feel ashamed of, everything that has held you down throughout your life, everything you've ever been guilty of or held a secret and don't want people to know, that gets lifted off of your shoulders because God sees you clean. And you're no longer that person because you're justified by Christ. And Paul felt that and he went out with zeal and he preached as good as anybody could possibly preach because he understood the scriptures better than the disciples. He was a Pharisee. But then he spent some time. And as time goes on, that freedom from sin that he experienced in the very initial moment started to lose his fervor. Because the problem is, even though spiritually you are now alive again and you are connected to the Holy Spirit, you are still trapped in this body. And the flesh wages war with your spirit. And he finds himself still coveting or still struggling with sin that he had struggled with before because he's still in this body and he doesn't know how to deal with it and he doesn't know how to wrestle with it. And he finds out that the struggle is real because we're still in this broken world and we're still in this broken body. And until we're glorified by Christ at the resurrection, we're stuck in the middle of this war. And that's what I think he's talking about. And he says that he was once alive without the law, but then the commandment came as in his studies and he is seeing how things point to Christ, but also how he still is a sinner in his flesh, even though he has been set free spiritually. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Well, that seems weird after this sort of depressing moment where he comes to this realization that even though he's been set free from sin and he is freed because of the blood of Christ, 
he still is at war in his flesh, and he still finds himself sinning. And that's hard for him to deal with. But he says, in conclusion to that idea, that the law itself is holy and the commandment is good. So he doesn't blame the law of God for his own failure. He recognizes that he is morally responsible for his failure. The law itself is good. He just doesn't measure up to it. And that's the problem. Even after his conversion. Well, like I said, chapter 7 is kind of a letdown. But it's very honest. And we've all probably experienced this. If you haven't, you're lying. The truth is, God has freed you. If you have come to Christ, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, you are free from sin. God sees you as white as snow. The, the sacrifice puts Christ's righteousness on you. You're free. God sees you as a holy human being because of Christ's sacrifice. But you are still at war with the flesh. The flesh is still trying to drag you down. The old nature of you still exists in this broken body. And so we still deal with the same struggles. Because it's still the same body that our spirit is trapped in. Now, one day, all things will be made new, and all will be changed, according to the Apostle Paul. And in that day, we're glorified and set free from that completely. But until then, we, our flesh is at war with our spirit. And now, for all of us, whatever it is for you, I don't know what it is for you. I don't know if you're like me, and sometimes, though you should be quick to listen and slow to anger, that you've reversed that. And you're quick to anger and slow to listen, because I have that problem. Maybe that computer screen is a place you should avoid, especially at certain times of day. There are some people here who I know have been a part of recovery ministries, right? And there are places maybe you shouldn't go because they just are houses of temptation, whether it's a bottle or a pill or a drug that you should avoid. Maybe it's a fast food joint because of convenience. Maybe it's the remote that makes you lazy instead of getting work done, gives you a place to be slothful. Maybe it's greed. Maybe there's just never enough. You're never satisfied with what you have. You're never content with what you have because you see what other people have and you want to keep up with the Joneses. Maybe it's gossip. I don't know. But we all struggle with something. We all know that we're not perfect. And that gets injected into us because of the nature of man. Now, right after, we should, we should be freed from this, and we should be able to pull our will in the direction of the Spirit and be freed in God's Spirit, but we are in this war, and the struggle is real. And that's what Paul is talking about. Now, remember who Paul is, because you're not alone. If Paul struggled, expect that you will. Right? It doesn't mean that you're not working towards working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul did, but he struggled. So let's keep going. 
Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me, though what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. What I, I kind of see when I am reading that in particular is this idea that what is meant to be good has become death because he's still connected to the sinful flesh. What I think of is like, imagine if you set up a treadmill in a room that's filled with mold. And you're doing something healthy and you're running and you're giving yourself a cardiovascular workout, but you're inhaling something that kills you. And the, the continuous striving to do good and to get healthier is actually breaking you down. And that's kind of how I picture this, right? This attempt to do good, knowing what the law is and trying to produce good out of it, still somehow in this sinful flesh leads us to being continually more and more broken down as we strive to be good. Because we can't. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. If you couldn't follow that, that's cool. It's ridiculous. What he's really saying is, there's a desire in me to do good. There's a desire in me to follow the Spirit of God and to fulfill the good deeds that he has out for me. I desire to do that, yet somehow I don't. And there are things in this world that I know are not good. There are things that I hate in my spirit, things that make me feel ashamed or guilty, yet somehow I get caught up and I find myself doing it. This makes me think of, if you've ever had children or been one, you've experienced this, where someone, you've either asked someone or someone has asked you, what were you thinking? And the response is, I wasn't. You just did. You didn't think about the consequences. You didn't think about the harm it could cause you or others. You just did it. I'll give you an example from my own stupid life. And I say that as irreverent as possible because sometimes I was dumb. I have a friend who was my best friend since like third grade. And when we were in high school, we were extra dumb. And to give you an example of what I mean by that, one of the ways we would, now, mind you, we were on our way to do something good. It was usually on the way to youth group or some sort of church-related event. He would come by and pick me up. Now, what we would do as he was going by my house to pick me up is someone would open a door in the vehicle as he was driving and I would run along the road as he was driving and jump into the vehicle as it was still moving. Now, the moment someone finally saw me do that, they said, what were you thinking? And I said, I don't know. Seemed fun at the time. And they said, do you realize you could, you know, break yourself in half. Sometimes we just do things without really thinking because it's just in our nature to not do the wise thing. But that's who we are as human beings. And that's what he's saying. What I wish I want, 
there are things in me that I want to do. There's a person I want to be. There's a thing I want to become. I want to look more like the image of God that he made me in, but I keep failing. And these things that I can't stand about myself, I keep falling into the trap. Why is that? And this is the Apostle Paul saying this. He failed. But now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, that verse, verse 17 if you have a highlighter or a pen, that's, that's an underliner right there, or a highlighter. It seems like a cop-out. It seems like he's just taking the blame off of himself and blaming sin. But what he's actually doing is identifying the enemy. That's what you need to do. You need to know your enemy. It turns out that the enemy is the very nature within us, the very sin nature within us. We don't make the job very hard for demons who want to convince us to sin because the nature within us is already bent in that direction. We are sometimes our own worst enemy. You need to know your enemy. If there is something that you struggle with, you know as good as anybody what it is and what the things are that cause you to go down that road. Is there a time of day? Is there a moment or a circumstance that you should avoid? If you've struggled with addiction, are there places you shouldn't go to or people you shouldn't hang out with, at least alone? Is there a time of day maybe you should stay away from your keyboard? There are things that we know about. You know your enemy. You know yourself. And if you get your eyes not fixated on what you do wrong, but rather replace those issues with doing right, if you know that it's not good for you to be alone, find a place to volunteer. Do something good and avoid the temptation. If you know there's a place you shouldn't go, take a different route home. You know yourself. Replace it with something good. He says, for the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will to do, not to do, I practice. Now, this is important, I think, because the Apostle Paul is someone that, as a Christian, you should look up to. We should also recognize that this is a guy who's telling you that he fails. So also, don't get depressed if you're not perfect all the time. Because neither was Paul. The question is, are you still striving to get closer to Christ? Or are you letting your failure define you? And falling into the trap of becoming carnal and getting further from Christ? There's no standing still. It's one direction or the other. It says, now I do what I will not to do. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. But what he's saying is, 
internally, the inward man, the spirit, the soul, is alive. The inside of me desires to be close to God, desires to understand him, desires to know him, desires to have a relationship with him, desires to be more like him, to be the person that God wants me to be, to do the things he has called me to do. That is what the inside of me desires. Do you have that in you? Do you have the motivation? Is it creeping inside of you? Is it bubbling out and pouring out of you? Do you want to know the word of God better? Do you want to know God better? Do you want to have a relationship with Jesus? Do you want to pray continually? Do you want to look more like what he has for you? Do you want to do the things that he's called you to do? Is that inside of you? Is that bubbling out from under the surface? That's what he's asking. At the same time, he recognizes that we all have this exact same problem. And he calls it the members, really meaning the body, the flesh. The outside of you is warring against the spirit. So know your enemy. Know your enemy. As he moves on, there's a tonal shift in verse 24. Because up, up to this point, it has been about his enemy, which is his flesh. As someone who has been saved by the grace of God, he is dead to his old nature, and he is alive with the newness of Christ, but he's still trapped inside of this broken, sinful body. And the flesh and the spirit wage war, and he's talking about knowing his enemy and the struggles that he has with giving into the flesh. But there's a shift in verse 24 as he closes up chapter 7. Here it is. O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He starts out by acknowledging that victory isn't going to come by him. He knows who the enemy is, and the enemy is partially himself. O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The flesh, his flesh is the enemy. And he knows that he can't deliver himself. It's not about his own two feet or pulling himself up by his own bootstraps. He is not the reason that there will be victory. And he says in verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God but with the flesh, the law of sin. And so the point goes from not just knowing your enemy, but who will deliver you from the flesh? Who will deliver you from the thing that drives you to sin? Not you. So he thanks God that through Jesus Christ, you can be rescued from that sin. So it's not just knowing your enemy, but knowing who can save you from the enemy. And it's not you. It's Jesus. Because no matter what you do, you can't outweigh your sin. You can't erase it. Now, Paul is talking to a Jewish audience. And if you look at what goes on today, there's no temple. There's no sacrifices that get done. There's no way to atone for sin. 
And so the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day on the Jewish calendar, they no longer have a lamb that's sacrificed to take away the sin. They no longer have a scapegoat to run out into the wilderness to have sin flee from the nation of Israel. How do they deal with sin? Well, the modern rabbis have written that what they do is they basically fast and they contemplate their lives and they hope that their good outweighs the bad. But that doesn't work because that's not part of their law. And there's no atonement for sin and there's no erasing it. You don't go before the judge and say, yeah, I'm guilty of murder, but every week I give to charity. I went to church. My neighbors think I'm a pretty good guy. I let that guy borrow my wrench and didn't ask for it back. I'm a good guy. The judge isn't going to say you're not guilty because you did some good things. Because it doesn't, doing some good things doesn't erase the sin in your life. It doesn't make you not guilty of the things you did that were wrong. And so atonement still needs to happen. You cannot save yourself from the broken man. Oh, wretched man, that Paul recognizes that he is. Who will deliver me from this? I can't do it. Because my ledger is full. I can't erase my own sin because I already committed it. How do I get rid of it? And the only way is to not just know your enemy, but to know your Savior. Jesus Christ is the only one who can clean your ledger. He's the only one who makes you clean. And what a way to end, because the very first verse of the next chapter puts it really into perspective. Now Romans 8, chapter 1, which is where we'll start next week, is, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Know your Savior. And tonight is communion night. And after this whole chapter of Paul explaining to us his own failures and mistakes and struggles with sin, it ends with, thank God for Jesus. And what a way to end for communion. Because the truth is, as we come to take the elements, we're asked to remember what he did for us. And the truth is, like we sang in Amazing Grace, he saved a wretch like me. Oh, wretched man, who will deliver me from this flesh? Thank God for Jesus Christ. And so as we take communion tonight, that's what we will remember and be thankful for, that he freed us when we couldn't. And so how it's going to go tonight is we're going to have a song playing in the background when I give them the signal. And we'll all come forward, stand and come forward down the middle aisle, take the elements, and then head to the outside back to your seat. When everyone's back in their seat, um, I'll direct us all to take communion together. 
Um, but as you're coming to gather the elements, reflect. Reflect on what God has done for you. Reflect what he saved you from. And maybe even take a moment to ask for forgiveness for the sin we still struggle with. And there's a song that we'll be playing called Open Me by Sean McDonald. It's been a prayer of mine for over a decade. The first time I heard this song, I thought, this is what I want for my life. And so this is what we'll be playing as we come up. And the lyrics go like this. Open up my eyes so I can see. Open up my ears so I can hear. Open up my mind so I can know and open my heart so I can love you more. I want to serve you, my God. I want to give you everything. I want to serve you, my King. And that's what we'll be playing as we take communion. So would everybody please stand and come forward to take the elements and head back to your seat.